The winner is. 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 And the winner is. What's the like of seeing your luggage? Sometimes. That means sometimes. There can be a hundred people in a room. Maybe there is right now. I know it's tuna, but it, it says chicken. I don't know her. She always has these long lists of like diva demands. Cheetos and Doritos. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. I understand you embrace the term diva. Hello, divas, divos, and divs. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Diva Dailies. This is a podcast where we deconstruct divas on film, TV, and in music. I am your host, Steffi, and I do have another host on this podcast. Her name is Angie, but she's not going to be doing the intros with me for the next two weeks. But don't worry, she's actually in the bulk of the episode. Um, But before I throw it to the episode, we got to go through some housekeeping. So if you are interested in following us on social media, we're at Diva Daily's Pod on Twitter slash X, Instagram, TikTok and threads. And if you're interested in following Angie and I on our personal socials, um, it's linked in the episode description. Well, first off, I just have to say Happy New Year, a uh, happy 2024 to all of our listeners. We are still on our Carol journey. Technically, Carol is also a, a New Year's Eve movie. So, you know, we're still kind of on theme ish. But, um, yeah, this is part two, and surprise, surprise, Angie and I's discussion about the Carol era ended up being super long, so we're breaking it into two parts. So this is part two of three. So in this episode, we get into the Carol era of Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara's careers, and then we also start talking about some of the maybe like controversial elements behind uh carol i ask angie two really big questions concerning the movie so look forward to hearing our discussion about that in the episode but yeah that's pretty much it um i hope you enjoy carol part two hello everybody welcome to part two of the carol episode where we are going to break down careers of both kate blanchett and rooney mara And this is going to be an interesting episode because I'm going to be learning a lot because let me tell you, (laughs) Miss Ma'am over here, Steffi, is about to nerd out hardcore in this era. I feel it in my soul. So you guys, welcome to our Justice for Carol 2015 directed by Todd Haynes episode. (laughs) So get ready for the nerdiness uh, to happen. Um, Are you ready? I'm I'm ready i'm ready as i can be i felt like i i watched as much and i read so many things so oh my god just gotta go for it yes yeah, so let's just go for it pretty legendary if you ask me i love it and this era will always have such a close place in my heart like i cherish every era so let's get into our first segment popcorn and pop stars <laughs> And this is simply the segment where we just give career context of where the divas were at the time. Again, the divas for these episodes are Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. So, Steffi, break it down. You got the you got the big boy. Oh my gosh, you guys. I'm like really excited because I feel like when I did my Kate 
filmography journey i've been holding so much in for the past (laughs) couple of months (laughs) i feel like i am like about to present a science fair project that i have been working really hard on you absolutely are okay well (laughs) to begin Kate Blanchett is obviously one of the most critically acclaimed best actresses of all time. And at this point, she was already very established in her career. She had been nominated for six Oscars by this point, and she won two. She won for Best Supporting Actress in The Aviator that was directed by Martin Scorsese. And the Oscar goes to Kate Blanchett in The Aviator. So, um... For for me, I can't believe that I'm standing here, having come, you know, from the theatre and constantly returning to it. So I can't remember what you asked me. (laughs) Something about me becoming a diva. Just you wait. (laughs) And then she also won Best Actress for her role in Blue Jasmine, which was directed by Woody Allen. And the Oscar goes to... Kate Blanchett. And to the audiences who went to see it, and perhaps those of us in the industry who are still foolishly clinging to the idea that that female films with women at the centre are niche uh, experiences. They are not. Audiences want to see them, and in fact, they earn money. So... (laughs) The world is round, people! And because she had been working for so long at such a high level, she had a lot of power and stature within the industry, which gave her the option and access to work with anyone she wanted, which is really perfect for her because she always talks about being very director driven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, throughout her career, you see her being like courted by the very best directors like Scorsese and Spielberg, Fincher, Peter Jackson, Alejandro and Yuritu, just to name a few. For me, very much um, those things happen out of dialogue. Maybe that's because I'm a creature of the theatre, but it's um, it's who you're who you're conversing with, and it, it really mm. comes to life through conversation. You, you can read an extraordinary screenplay, but it's um, who's going to be looking down the lens at, at you, mm. who's going to be helping to create that atmosphere. You know, is really whether the work that you do gets seen or not seen. So, leading up to Carol. I had here in my document that this was a great time in her career, but then I was like, hasn't her entire career been pretty much a great time? (laughs) Because even though there were periods where the quality of films may have been a bit questionable, like they ebbed and flowed, the thing with Kate Blanchett is she's always been consistently working. And... Pretty much, I I looked up, I didn't look up what the movies were, because, you know, there is a game coming up. But I looked up on Wikipedia, and pretty much, she had at least one movie out every year, starting from the year 1997, which is when she made her feature film debut in Paradise Road, to, at the time of recording this, in 2023. There were only two years in that entire time period where she didn't have a movie being released. The first was in 2009, and I'm pretty sure that's around the time when she went back to Australia to be co-CEO with her husband at the Sydney Theatre Company. And then the other year was 2020 yeah, because of the pandemic. I know actors, they don't control when a movie is going to be coming out. Like, they have no control over that. So sometimes it could take a while for a movie to come out. But imagine, like, during that entire 20-plus year run you've had at least one movie out. Which is huge, because actors do not get that. It's not a norm at all. No, that's not a norm. At all. Yeah, she's like the top 
five yeah. percent of actresses. Absolutely. So <laughs> absolutely. So about two-ish weeks prior to filming Carol, she had just won her second Academy Award. But I want to ask you about the fact that you are the first Australian actor or actress ever to win two and don't Oscars. Don't you forget it. <laughs> and I was listening to a podcast where they interviewed the actor who played the lawyer in Carol. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, I remember like watching her on TV. And then two weeks later, here I am filming a scene with her. Oh my gosh. So I got this, I got the part. Um, about a week later, she won the Academy Award. And, and then two days after that, I'm standing next to her. And it was just so surreal. And I couldn't get my brain around it. In 2015, just to take a look at the projects that she released, she had three films that came out, but there were technically five projects. So the first movie that technically came out was a film called Night of Cups. Mm. That was directed by Terrence Malick. But the thing is, like, it premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in February of 2015, but it wasn't officially released in the U.S. until the following year. Mm. So that's why there's, like, a bit of a technicality there. But in that movie, she plays one of Christian Bale's love interests. And that movie is very much, like, vibes... But I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, but I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, it's just like very like rich, privileged people being sad and it's super atmospheric and breathy and Right. Yeah. A lot of walking <laughs> around. You never really wanted to be totally inside our marriage. Or outside it either. The next movie that came out of Kate's in 2015 was Cinderella Ooh. in March of 2015. Mm -hmm. And that was directed by Kenneth Branagh, where she played Lady Tremaine, Cinderella's stepmother. Yeah, she was so good in that. I know. She was, she was really yeah, good she's in very, that. very good. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see like villain Kate. Oh, yeah. I would say in terms of live action Disney, Cinderella is up there. Yeah, you know what I love about that Cinderella live action is like, it's just so simple and it doesn't try to do too much. Yeah, like Cinderella for me was bottom tier Disney. Oh, in terms of animation? Animation, oh, like that Sleeping Beauty, you know, Snow White, I'm like, ugh. Oh, you didn't like the older ones? Blech. You didn't like older animated Disney? I mean, I like Fantasia. Yeah. I could sit through Bambi, but like in terms of princesses, like, girl, why? I don't really care. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But um, going into Cinderella, I was very surprised that I was like enjoying myself. Yeah. And I was like, okay, Kate. Yeah. I see you. All right. I know. I know. It was really good. And she's so good in it. And fun fact, the costume designer for Cinderella was a woman named Sandy Powell. And she also did the costumes for Carol. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I mean, the main takeaway there is just let Sandy Powell dress <laughs> Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Because she looks fabulous in both right, movies. Right. <laughs> How could you? How could I otherwise? I will not have anyone associate my daughters with you. It would ruin their prospects to be seen arriving with a ragged servant girl. Because that is what you are. And that is what you will always be. Now mark my words. You shall not go to the ball. I also have to give a shout out to the iconic press moment during the Cinderella press tour when Kate Blanchett gave us the iconic it's the gays, not the gays interview moment. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 yes. She's like, oh, it's the gays, <laughs> not the gays. And she like breaks her wrist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
You know, you have such a, a, a gaze, a signature, the crew is cracking up here. I have a whole lot of gaze? The signature Disney villain gaze. I want to know, how, how do you do that Disney villain gaze? Teach, teach oh, us. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought Disney villain gaze. <laughs> As in, <laughs> the, day, the gay Disney villains. Sorry, this is an accent dysfunction. Oh, you mean the gaze, not the gaze. <laughs> I didn't know. Well, Lady Tremaine, maybe she, if she was gay, maybe she would have been happier. She would have been. <laughs> but their marriage was never going to work. And then a couple months after that, of course, Carol premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 2015, but it wasn't officially released in theaters until November of 2015. Can you each kind of just elaborate on what it was like to to premiere the film at Cannes and how the reception kind of, if it overtook you at all? Oh, it was a big relief. <laughs> I was really nervous. I mean, I've been here a few times, um, but never in competition, and I think it adds that extra mm. kind of layer of anxiety. At once, it's cinematic and theatrical, mm. except there's nothing you can do about it, you know. You never know whether it's going to deeply connect with people who haven't been part of the process. Yeah. And, and for that to happen was a big relief. Uh -huh. And then, in the fall of that same year, she had another movie called Truth, which was directed by James Vanderbilt. And she co-starred in that movie with Robert Redford, who played Dan Rather. And the story of that movie is she plays a woman named Mary Mapes, who was Dan Rather's producer on 60 Minutes. And it's about the news scandal when CBS ran a potentially false report about George Bush and the fallout from all of that. Right. It's basically like another classic Kate Blanchett on the edge of a nervous breakdown performance. So... <laughs> She's very good at that. Hey, Mary. These blogs are saying that the memos can be recreated in Microsoft Word. Several experts have raised serious questions. They're going to start an investigation. This is bad. They do not get to do this. They do not get to smack us just for asking the question. They want to talk to your source. No. It's bad. And then much later in the year, by December of 2015, this is the other technicality. She had an art installation project that was directed by Julian Roosevelt. And you had to literally go to a museum in order to experience this. But the basic idea was when you walked into the exhibit, there were 13 different screens and she played 13 different characters reading different manifestos. And um, this premiered at the Australian Center for the Moving Images in December of 2015. And then um, they eventually packaged all of the different clips together for film. And then that premiered at Sundance in 2017. But um, there is a way that you can watch it on YouTube, because I did that, oh. you know, because I was on my Kate to journey. <laughs> it's a very artsy project, and I honestly had, like, no clue what the fuck was going on for most of it. I think I'm just, like, too stupid to get it. <laughs> Not very intellectual or artsy enough to understand most of it. But, you know, I'm happy for her. It was a great acting exercise. 13 Kate Blanchett, what more can you ask for? <laughs> You were sitting there like this. You were like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. I think. I was literally like, mm -hmm. I have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> At one point, there is like a little puppet Kate Blanchett that gave me a chuckle. So I guess maybe there's technically 14. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah. Forms move and board, and we are forever making new discoveries. To the electric chair with Chopin. Original, okay? So you can steal from 
anywhere that resonates with inspiration and fuels your imagination. Okay? Okay. Yeah, ultimately, like, this whole era of Kate Blanchett's career, she was kind of, like, having a great second wave. Mm -hmm. Because, like, for me, I kind of break up Kate's career into different segments okay and there's kind of like a like a beginning era yeah. and then there's like the era where she she started working with more of these like big name directors right, right. like scorsese and yeah you know Inuritu and fincher and all of them yeah. but then there was a noticeable break that she took but even within that break she would like make appearances in different movies but she wasn't like the main focus right and the reason why there was that break was because she went to australia to work in theater right. but then her post-career after being in the theater for a couple of years it's like this era and it's like mm. really really great yeah, so yeah. <laughs> great yeah it's great when i got to that portion of the list i was like "Ooh, i am ready to have a good time <laughs> oh my gosh we should maybe go to rudy yes now i was gonna say you set that up perfectly and i feel bad following it up with rudy mara because it's not gonna be as extensive because it's okay <laughs> Rooney Mara was essentially like on the rise right by the time Carol came out mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think she's reached her peak yet oh really you don't think she's reached her peak no I feel like there's a lot more we we could see from her I do feel that way but I don't know if she necessarily like I don't know how much she wants to work yeah that's different that's different yeah she's a bit slower in her process She's about to do passion projects. Yeah. It doesn't feel like she's she's working for money. Well, she doesn't need to. Period. <laughs> do you, you know, yes. like, you know her, like, family background. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. She, she's definitely a legacy kid. Yeah, she, I mean, really surprised that the Nepo baby accusations did not come for the Mara sisters. Because she is phenomenal. And that's the thing. When you are a, a Nepo baby and you're good at what you do, i.e. Whitney Houston, yeah, i.e. Janet Jackson, when you come and do what you're supposed to do and you do it well, we don't have issues. Exactly. Be a Nepo baby. And I kind of love that you're a Nepo baby. Like, what was that like? Right. <laughs> yeah, Rooney Mara's mom's family founded the Pittsburgh Steelers and her Boom. father's family founded the New York Giants. Yeah. So money. They, they come from mad money. Now, I, I want to ask this because I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I've heard, yeah. Yes, so you, uh, your name, Rooney Mara. Rooney, the family that owns the Steelers. Yes. Mara, the family that owns the Giants. So you mm -hmm. came from, you are the culmination of a football family. Yes. And yes. But I'm, a I'm assuming you root for your last name more than your first name. Um, people always ask me this. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York. My dad works for the Giants, mm -hmm. so I definitely like <laughs> The Giants definitely have, have the edge. Because her name isn't even, that's not her first name, Rooney. That's the mom's maiden name. Her first real name is Patricia. Excuse me? Yeah, her real first name is Patricia, then it's Rooney, and then Mara. Because the Rooney, I believe, is the mom's maiden name, and then the Mara is the father's last name. But when she's acting, it's Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Yeah. Huh. Can you imagine an interviewer going up to her and be like, Patricia? <laughs> I don't even know how Rooney Patricia. would react to that. <laughs> like, she probably like blink twice and like just pretend like the moment didn't happen. But you were once a Patricia. You were Trisha. 
Rooney Yes, Mara. I was. And now, why did you get rid of Trisha? You know, I don't know. I never liked that name. And my dad goes by his middle name. My little brother goes by his middle name. It didn't seem that crazy to me to go by my middle name. As you guys heard, Rooney Mara definitely, she comes from wealth. Yes. Unlike like a Kate Blanchett or other actors, she is definitely doing passion projects, which normally are like these smaller uh, films, but have big punches. Yeah. So in 2010, she she had been acting for a hot, a hot second before 2010, but 2010, 2011 were the big breakout moments. In 2010, it was a big moment for her where she starred in an ensemble cast in the social network which was a huge film when it debuted it was a moment because of course that film was allegedly about mark zuckerberg and facebook you are probably going to be a very successful computer person you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd and i want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true it'll be because you're an asshole and then 2011 comes around and girl with the dragon tattoo drops. She's one of the best investigators I have. But she's different. Uh, in what way? In every way. Something wrong with the report? Anything you chose not to disclose. He's clean in my opinion. He's honest. My credibility isn't dead yet. Mine is. He's had a long-standing sexual relationship with his co-editor of the magazine. Sometimes he pleasures her. Not often enough, in my opinion. No, you're right not to include that. And oh my gosh, the waves are like huge for that film. She gets nominated for her first Academy Award. uh, And she's nominated for other awards, such as the Golden Globes and the MTV Movie Awards. Yeah. It's a huge moment in her career. She is Rune and Mara, and she has made quite a name for herself with this new movie, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Her stunning performance as an oddball computer hacker has already earned her a global, a Golden Globe nomination and an award last night. Congratulations. Thank you. I think this was like the first step in solidifying her as um, like a powerhouse yeah. actor. Yeah, I remember like when that movie came out. I feel like I always kind of have a fondness for Rooney Mara just off the strength of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. And that's largely because that was the first rated R movie that I ever snuck into. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I didn't like, I I don't even, I don't know if I was like 16 or 17 yet, but I remember that was like. You were there. The cool movie to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the cool movie to watch at the time. And I was at the theater with my friend. And we initially had gone to see, um, it was like the holiday season. And we had initially gone to see New Year's Eve. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the one with everybody, the ensemble, right? Yeah, everyone's in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're like all connected. Yeah. So the reason why we went to go watch that movie was because he's a really big Sex and the City fan. Mm. And he wanted to watch Sarah Jessica Parker. And so we went to the movie. And then we came out of that and we were like, meh, I don't know. And then we were like, what time is it? And then we walked around a little bit and he was like, do you want to go home? And I was like, I don't want to go home yet. And he was like, well, let's see, maybe we could like watch another movie. And then we saw Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and we were like, oh my God, okay, maybe we could like just go back in and just like try sneaking in. Because like he wasn't of age and I wasn't of age and we didn't even have like a driver's license. So we couldn't even show them like an ID if they asked us like, can we see your ID? (laughs) 
but we went back into the theater and we snuck into Girl the Dragon Tattoo. We like walked in halfway into the movie, but we were jolted. We were like, now that's a movie. <laughs> this is how I know you're a goody two shoes. <laughs> you were like, are they going to card us? Like nobody said yeah, like, I was like, Colin, what about what about what are like the logistics of this? <laughs> It was a moment. That felt like one of my like first adult movies that I watched. It, it was an adult movie. Well, it was an adult movie, but that was also around the time when I like started going to the movie theaters like without my parents. So like the fact that like I was with my friend so and we grown. like snuck in, I was like, oh god, we're here. <laughs> this you is felt it. Extra grown. Like yeah, I'm like I may not be able to drive. But listen, I can sneak in to the rated R Rooney Mara movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was a crazy film for sure. I know. But then um, before Carol, there was like a few more other smaller films. Almost all of them were critically acclaimed, uh, such as 2013 science fiction romantic, our romance, Her, yeah. starring Joaquin Phoenix. Her future husband. <laughs> You're dating your computer? No, she's not just a computer. She's her own person. She doesn't just do whatever I say. I didn't say that. But it does make me very sad that you can't handle real emotions, Theodore. They are real emotions. How would you know wh what? What? Say it. Am I really that scary? Say it. How do I know what? I will say, <laughs> I wasn't very familiar with Rooney Mara. Yeah. And then I started doing research and I was like, girl, I remember you in this. I remember you in this. That was me too. Because like when I started watching Carol again, I don't think I realized that Rooney Mara was in the movie. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching it, I was like, oh wait, I had just seen Rooney Mara in Women Talking, which was nominated for Best Picture I about that movie. last yes. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like she's one of those actresses where like you don't realize you've actually seen a good number of her stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. social network yeah. her um she was in the movie lion yes. which i didn't watch for her mm -hmm. but like she's in that yeah, she has a small role yeah, she's one yeah. of those actresses for me she's like the um critically acclaimed melissa de souza <laughs> <laughs> i think melissa de souza would be jumping for joy with that um comparison <laughs> you welcome yeah <laughs> the one thing about her she has good taste yeah on what films to do because there's some people who do passion projects, but they just keep picking the wrong films. Like, girl, why'd you do this film? Why why would you do that film? You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. I completely agree. I think like that's an underrated skill that a lot of people don't yes. consider when it comes to mm -hmm. actors and actresses is their taste level and their ability to choose good projects. Yes. I mean, like, I'm sure that's them, but it's also like their team kind of mm -hmm. talking with them about like, okay, why are we going to do yep. this? Like, what's the goal here? But you have to have a certain taste level yes if you want to have a good career and that was <laughs> so. that was aimed at lupita nyong'o i love you girl but <laughs> i need i need you to do better i need you to pick better oh. let's get on that wow <laughs> well those were angie's words not mine so okay so why do you think kate blanchett did this movie well, it's really interesting because kate blanchett was attached early on like even before mm -hmm. todd haynes so he didn't even cast her. She was there before him. Kate Blanchett was attached to the film. Before exactly. Him. Kate was on before I was. Um, so that was sort of a drag. Um, 
But, you know, as a director, you make do, and you, you just work with what the material that you're given. Um, I was trying to figure out, like, at what point did she become attached to the project? She was sometimes asked in interviews, but she never really specifies when. But I did find an interview, like, I think it was a panel, where she said it was about, like, at the time when she did the panel, it was about, like, six-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming it's around, like, 2008, 2009, which is when she got attached. Kate, your history goes back the longest with this, right? How did this material come across your radar? Um, well, I, I, much to my shame, I hadn't read any Patricia Highsmith before doing um, The Talent of Mr. Ripley many a year ago with Anthony Minghella. And I read all the Ripley books and sort of, I, I think I did read the book then, but um, obviously devoured it before making this. But I, it, it came to my, I don't know how long ago now. These things become so irrelevant, you know, once the film finds the right way to be made, which is, you know, obviously with Todd and, 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 and Rooney. But um, I think I probably, it came to my attention about six years ago, uh, maybe, yeah. But, you know, we're going to get into this later on, but it took a really long time for this movie to get made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have here, like, as a question for myself to answer was, like, why did she decide to stay on for as long as she did? Right, right. And I think, well, one is... Like, I mean, Carol's a really great role. Mm-hmm. So much of this movie is acting through silences and glances. Absolutely. So I would imagine if, like, you're an actress, you're like, ooh, this is mm-hmm. this is great material for me to work with. Yeah. And then there's also the narrative, too, that the older women get, because by this point, Kate Blanchett was in her mid-40s. Right, right. So there is this narrative that the older women get, the less interesting their roles become, and right. they're, like, kind of relegated to playing support mm-hmm. for their male co-star, and then the defining trait becomes them being like a mom or a grandma and then that's like pretty much the end of their character (laughs) but like carol is a very complex character like yes she's a mom but that's not the only trait defining her character and there's like a lot of external and internal struggle that she's feeling because she is a highsmith creation her internal machinations, and that's why it's so thrilling to play, are very, very private. And often, I think her motivations are quite hidden from herself. And the thing that I found quite heartrending about the characters is that they are incredibly, forget their gender, they're very, very isolated as women. And then there's the love story aspect as well. And it, there's an interesting, like, grace note that in Carol, the older woman is the object of desire, right. which not that common. So, um, yeah, ultimately, I feel like a role like Carol, particularly for women in their 40s, is rare to come by. And honestly, like we were just discussing, after watching all of her movies, I genuinely trust Kate Blanchett's decision when it comes to what movie she's going to sign on for. Like, whether or not those movies end up being good or bad, she can't really control that. But there has to be a reason why she says yes. Because she's Kate Blanchett. She can literally... Do any movie she wants. Exactly. So there has to be a reason why she says yes. So yeah. um, I think with Carol, there were a lot of reasons why. And then as soon as Todd Haynes signed on, she loves Todd Haynes. She right, worked right. with him before exactly. on I'm Not There. Yeah. You think it Carol should have been directed by women? I think working with Todd's like a girlfriend. More than yeah, anyone, absolutely, Kate, more than anyone yeah, totally. that I've ever met. He has his, his sense of, and I, I feel I really connected with him in that way, is that 
I don't, your, people's gender is not my first point of engagement mm. with mm. them. And it's not with Todd. And if you look at all the great roles that women have played, I mean, he asked me to play Bob Dylan for fuck's sake. Mm. She also said too that as soon as he signed on, that's when the project really started to get going. So, yeah. But it does seem you were very much a part of keeping the machine, keeping it going through yes, all those years. Yes, and you know, our production company was involved and I was very passionate about the project. And But it's a very special, unique, uh, delicate film and often those films take a long time to find the right way to, um, to be realized on screen and finally when when Todd threw his hat in the ring it became a it, you know it then it found its true momentum and, and and took off I definitely think as we talked about earlier uh Rooney Mara has a good knack for picking good roles and I feel like it's hard to look at this project with Kate Blanchett attached to it and be like no like to read the script, to read the book, and then knowing Kate Blanchett is part of it and be like, I'm going to pass on this one, you know? But you know, she initially passed though. Yes. Yes. I had either just finished Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or I, it was right after I'd finished four films in a row, which was after Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And whichever it was, I was exhausted and I sort of, I couldn't imagine myself playing any part. And there was many wonderful pieces of material that I read that I passed on and this was one of them. I read it and obviously I'd you know, been obsessed with Kate since I was 13 years old and I saw her in Elizabeth. So it's shocking to me now to think that I would pass up the opportunity to be in a film with her, let alone be her lover. Um. But I think to come back around, like it's hard to truly pass up on an opportunity like this, especially because it's a career defining moment, even though Rooney Mara already had one with Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. But it's like, yeah, if I could do it again, why not? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then lucky for me, it came back to me. I think it was a year or more later and I hadn't worked in an entire year. So I was in a much different headspace and I read it again. And this time Todd was attached to it. And um, it was a very easy yes at that at that point. Right. And like Therese as a character, character? Mm -hmm. it really leans into Rudy Mara's like skill set as yeah. an actress. I picked Rooney, <laughs> I'm so happy to say. When you see a young actor like that, who knows, who somehow understands the scale of the medium of film so well that she knows how to underplay, how to reduce down and minimize the gesture and have it almost have more impact through understatement, you know, that to me is like, rare and and speaks to real like intelligence and and innate understanding that exceeds her years and her experience and you see that in this performance i think maybe more than anything um she's done because it kind of asks for it more you know she talks a lot about in like her, yeah in her interviews that she's like she's an observer and it's like well Therese is an observer so yeah do you consider yourself a, an observer yeah is that that's the that's the way you like to live your life whenever you can you know I don't like to be in crowds I really feel like I, I really kind of soak up everyone else's um emotions and moods I really pick up on that but um yeah I just I just related to that that part of Therese and a lot of roles that uh, Rooney Mara has played lends itself into that that type of like personality traits within the characters. They're like mm -hmm. kind of quiet sometimes, you know, very observant. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I'm, I also am, am a very introverted, sort of quiet person. I don't really, uh, I can be quite nonverbal at times. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy she, she reconsidered. It is interesting, though, because I remember that Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was supposed to be a trilogy. Yeah, it was. But then it, it wasn't. It was. And then there was like the whole like, do you remember like the Sony hack emails being leaked? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. The Sony hacking scandal. And it is not pretty. This morning, Hollywood abuzz as Tinseltown's dirty laundry is laid out in plain view. What a mess for Sony, right? It's horrible. The hacking scandal that has embarrassed movie giant Sony, now even messier after private emails about the A-list of the A-list were leaked. And I guess like one of the emails that was leaked was Rooney Mara emailing Amy Pascal asking if the girl, the dragon tattoo trilogy is still a thing and that she's still, it's a very like earnest email and it's kind of sad to read it. Because she's like, I really love this character and I just, I wanted to know like if it's still a thing, um, you know, because you guys can Google it if you really want to see what she said in the email. But it's just like, oh, poor Rooney. But then I'm like, if the girl with the dragon tattoo would have gotten like a sequel or a third movie, like, I don't know if she would have been able to do Carol. No, like, I think the trajectory of her career would have been different. Yeah. Um, Because, of course, at that point, it would have been a way bigger deal. There would have been a lot more budget into it, probably because she got Oscar nominations for the first one. So there's like that Oscar buzz from the first. So there's definitely going to be more budget. It's going to be like such a bigger thing. Yeah. That it doesn't seem like she could have picked a lot of the, the films that she did after girl with the dragon tattoo if there was a trilogy there's there's no way there's no way yeah there's no way at all would you have rather had rooney in two more additional girl with the dragon tattoo movies overseeing her in carol or are you happy that she wasn't carol that's a hard one yeah i don't know that's a hard one you're putting two babbages against each other i know but the possibility of like more films with one character yeah yeah honestly okay don't hate me for this. I feel like if you take Kate Blanchett out of Carol, mm-hmm. the film is going to feel different. Right. It's a completely different vibe. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But I feel like if you take Rooney Mara out of this film, mm-hmm. we still probably could get that same vibe with somebody else. It might feel a little different. Yeah. But Kate Blanchett is still going to do her thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like the main ingredient that you really need yes. for this to work. Right. Because like if Kate Blanchett wasn't it, but they found another powerhouse to be Carol, but Rooney Mara was still in it, the whole movie is still going to vibe different. Yeah. You take Rooney Mara out of Carol, they could find another. Yeah. They could they could find another chick. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Carol's still going to be a heavy hitter. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying with Kate Blanchett? Mm-hmm. But Girl with the Dragon Tattoo... I honestly don't know who could have played old girl and girl with the dragon tattoo. I think they did another girl with the dragon tattoo movie, but Rooney wasn't Lisbeth. It was Claire Foy from The Crown, and that I didn't watch that movie. Wait, number two, but it did not look good. I was like, "What the fuck is this, Queen Elizabeth? What are you doing, Claire?" As like a as like a a sequel. sequel. Yeah, I forget what it was called. There was a sequel. Yeah, I didn't watch it. I'm a fan of yours. The CEO who beat up two prostitutes, but then got acquitted in court yesterday. It's got me down. I'm transferring 20% of your cash for these two girls. I'm calling down to security. 
The rest I'm transferring to your wife. Account number. Don't! Five, one, nine, one, two. Take your child and leave. He won't hurt you again. But it was like so irrelevant to the point where like Rooney, Mara, and Claire Foy were in Women Talking. And at no point during their press run did anyone think to ask them. Both of you played Lisbeth Slander. <laughs> like that's how like what a non-event that movie was. Like people didn't even think to ask them about playing the same characters. So So then give me the the trilogy. I'll go with the trilogy. So you'd rather Rooney be in the trilogy versus her and Carol? Yes. I don't know. Yes. I love this movie the way it is. So <laughs> And that's including you, Patricia. <laughs> Patricia, stand behind me. All the haters that get into Rudy's performance say they don't like it. Patricia, stand behind me. You're a mess, bro. Stand behind me. Stand behind me, Patricia. Oh, with your heaps of money. <laughs> okay, well, the question I wanted to ask you, though, was like concerning their on-screen persona. Okay. And like figuring out like how does the character in my case of Carol and in your case Therese how does that figure into the on-screen persona and how we perceive them as actresses mm. so I'll go first go first yeah let me think about that for me you said I'm ready I'm ready I'm giving you like a sneak peek preview to my little video essay about Miss Kate oh, Blanchett my so. gosh. this is one of Kate Blanchett's most iconic characters Mm-hmm. in her entire filmography absolutely it's like absolutely. now we would probably say like Lydia Tarr mm-hmm. Carol would be up yep. there Galadriel and I think the thing that all three of those characters have in common is that they're exceptional women yeah there's always like a special quality to her most iconic on-screen characters so like for example Galadriel is pretty an extreme example but like Galadriel is like this regal powerful elf and also just like in the way that movie works she is one of the few women in that entire franchise so she like mm-hmm. already just stands out yeah. by that mm-hmm. in the aviator she's playing Catherine Hepburn who's like yeah iconic curious case of Benjamin Button like she's positioned in that movie as being a very talented dancer and then she's in this unique circumstance of falling in love with a man who was aging backwards so like she kind of stands out there and then in tar she's you know conductor egot lydia (laughs) lydia tar (laughs) and then also obviously like in carol she plays this upper class glamorous housewife so it's not as extreme, but Kyle Chandler has that line where he's like, you're always the most beautiful woman in the room. Period. And, and she was. It doesn't take you that much convincing to believe that. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know when sometimes when you watch movies or shows and there's that character that all the other characters in the movie or in the show are like, oh my God, it's so-and-so. Yeah. And then like you see the person, you're like, hmm? Them? Okay, girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> this is a bit underwhelming. But like, you never feel that way about Kate Blanchett. You're like, oh, no. yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, Rooney Mara talked about when they were doing their first screen, like hair and makeup tests, like seeing Kate as Carol for the first time and being like, oh, my God. Carol walks in. She's Kate Blanchett, but she's dressed by Sandy Powell. She's mm-hmm. like this perfect example of glamorous femininity. Yeah. And you are sort of poleaxed by it. You're <laughs> looking at it and saying, what is this? Yeah. Well, you know, that's how I felt in real life, too. And. I remember when we did the we did our first sort of screen hair and makeup test with, in full costume, and we still hadn't figured out Therese's 
hair and makeup and a wig and so mine was sort of still in flux and I remember Kate walking onto the set and she was in sort of that same kind of outfit that she walks into the department store and I was just like oh my god I felt so <laughs> sort of small and hideous and dowdy and mousy next to her and I just couldn't believe it I felt like I was looking at you know a movie star from yesteryear and um that's sort of Kate is very magnetic on camera and off camera mm -hmm. so yeah, I've, I've seen that. <laughs> it, was easy, it was easy to to pretend. An additional note here I have too is like, there was a Vulture article that I read a week or so ago and they were ranking every single Kate Blanchett performance. And at one point, like they wrote that, you know, she plays relatable characters. And I'm like, no, she doesn't. Like for me, I don't think she plays relatable women. Mm. Like on the page, I don't think they're necessarily relatable, but yeah. I, I think through her performance, they become human. Absolutely. And yeah. I'm personally drawn to the Kate Blanchett performances where she's playing characters that involve performance of identity. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think of her being like a very layered actress, because yeah. not only is she as an actress playing a character, but her character is also performing within the world of the movie. Yeah. So, for example, in Tar, I mean, she's literally performing on stage as a conductor and then spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen tar but you learn that lydia tar like that character is a literal construction like lydia isn't even her real name it's linda <laughs> linda tar two r's no accent over the a <laughs> and then um you know in blue jasmine mm. she's playing a rich housewife yeah. but something happened to her husband and now she's broke yeah and depending on the company that that character is around there's times where she's just like deluded herself into believing she's still a rich woman so she'll play like the part of her past self yeah and similarly to tar you learn that jasmine isn't even her real name yeah so even before she lost all of the money in blue jasmine like the role of quote-unquote jasmine was a performance right right and then in carol like carol's not her real i'm just kidding <laughs> I'm like, Carol is not her I mean, real I'm name. Like, I saw the movie. <laughs> Bajillion times. <laughs> uh, no. Um, in Carol, like, the obvious performance is the fact she can't be her true self mm. given the times. Yeah. So she's feeling restrained in a lot of ways, um, especially when she's around, like, the upper echelon yeah. suburban community. But I think also there's an element of performance in the way that Therese views her mm. because in the beginning of the movie we're seeing carol through the perspective of therese like we said in part one like literally through therese's camera lens yeah. at some points and so she like plays up to the glamorous ideal of like 1950s right. femininity and even like you know when she's courting therese like her seduction is a performance like yeah. it's a bit heightened like Watch the sequence when she takes Therese to the Jersey home and she gets up <laughs> off the floor with no hands. Like, wow. Personally, it felt less about the period and more about what Todd was referring to before about the gaze. There was a scene where <laughs> um, Rooney was playing the piano, Therese was playing the piano and I was... I found this position on the floor and I, ha I thought I have to be graceful and I, I rehearsed a lot so I could get up in one movement. <laughs> yeah, and then another thing I have here too, and I think this actually applies to Rooney Mara, is they're both elusive and mysterious. Yes, I agree. 
in Carol. Yeah, in Carol, but also like I think in real life too, because both Kate mm. Blanchett and Rooney Mara are private people. That's true. You really don't know much about them. They're yeah, not yeah. on social media. Right. They're never in the news. Yeah. So because of that, that's facts. It gives them the space to create these characters and us as the audience to not really project anything onto them. Right. And so I think that ties into Carol in a way because we're watching these actresses play characters, mm. Carol and Therese, who are also a bit of a mystery yeah, yeah, yeah. to each other. Mm. Bars. Kate Blanchett spoke about working with Rooney Mara earlier this year at the Centre Pompidou, and she talked about how Rooney is like very mysterious. Not secretive, but she's very mysterious. Rooney's very... She's very mysterious, and I think, um, you know, both as a screen presence but also as a human being and so you but incredibly uh thoughtful and she doesn't speak unless she has something she needs to say but it felt like you know she had a very particular sort of not secretive but mysterious she's rather mysterious have you thought about Rooney's on-screen persona so it's it's hard for me to talk about Rooney in general, because I'm not the biggest fan. You're not like fluent in Miss Mara. I'm not fluent in Miss Mara at all. And even though I've seen her in a lot of these films, I haven't seen the films in years. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, of course I've seen the social uh, social media. Of course I've seen Girl with a Drag Tattoo, her, all of these things. Right. But like the details of the uh, these films are not... Um, at the forefront of my brain mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying totally but in terms of carol like you said i would agree that as far as what i've seen of rooney mara in the interviews that i've seen she does give this air of like mystery yeah her and kate blanchett it, it feels like you know celebrities of the golden era yeah or the old times you know what i'm saying where right they're just like oh my gosh such and such is in the room. Yeah, there's like an aura and presence about them. Absolutely. It, it definitely gives like the, the acting version of like what Beyonce gives in the music world. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, Beyonce. Ooh, Kate Blanchett. Right. Ooh, Rudy Mara. Like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I feel like for me, Carol gave off more of the mystery mm. in, in the like old Hollywood way. Yes. Yes. Versus Therese where... I feel like she's mysterious because she's just in awe. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? She's flung out of space, Angie. <laughs> <laughs> she's flung out of space. Did you use that line as kind of a springboard to delve into who Therese was? No, actually, I remember that line always kind of like, I always was kind of scared of that line, thinking, well, am I? Am I that, <laughs> like, I don't, I didn't feel flung out of space, but... In watching it, which I, is exactly Teresa's reaction. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But in watching it, I could see, I could see that. But in playing it, I did not feel like flung out of space. It felt quite ordinary. Yeah. No, I feel like um, she she gives a different type of mystery. Yeah. Not only is she trying to figure out herself. So because she's trying to figure out herself, yes, we don't know what she's. Yeah, good point. Like what she's going through, and like how we could put her in a box that we want to mm -hmm. put her in. Right. Totally. But also she's such in awe of Carol. Yeah. And because we don't know much about Carol, like Carol feels mis mysterious. Therese being in awe of her, like everything now is just mysterious because now we're just like, 
okay, we all just vibing here. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Because I think like the way we feel about Carol as a character is largely because of the way Therese feels about Carol. Absolutely. And I, I feel like there's part of it too that's like just within her character arc, like there's a part of Therese that probably she's she's feeling like, oh my gosh, I got I got the bad bitch. <laughs> like she's interested in me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. I think also too, I'm interested to know your thoughts about this. I feel like Rooney and Kate, especially when you're thinking about Rooney Mara and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I feel like mm. in a way there is some sort of like gender and sexual fluidity that they both mm. are able to have on screen. Yeah. Because even though they're both very feminine in this movie, you know, like I just said, like Rooney played Lisbeth in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo mm-hmm. and Kate played Bob Dylan in yeah, yeah, yeah. Todd Haynes, I'm Not There. Because I think like there's certain actresses who can't do that. Absolutely. But mm, I definitely I definitely get the vibes that you're on because they've played queer slash queer coded characters. Yeah. And because they're mysterious in real life, it's like, oh, yeah, we could we could see that, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, like a really extreme example would be like, I can't imagine someone like, I don't know, like Reese Witherspoon doing this. You know what exactly, I mean? Exactly. Because like the way that she has cultivated her career yeah, yeah. and the characters that we like strongly associate her as, they're very feminine. Like I think of like Legally Blonde when I think of yeah, yeah. Reese Witherspoon. Whereas like with Rooney and Kate, I don't necessarily, they're not as like strongly feminine coded as maybe like other actresses to me. But I think I think that goes back to how we perceive them in real life though mm. right yeah because let's use Reese Witherspoon for instance I can't picture her like that because she was famously together with old dude for the longest time and that but see, like for me I'm able Ryan to Filippi think of Reese Witherspoon this yeah without Ryan Phillippe Phillippe uh yeah but I feel like for for me growing up with Reese Witherspoon right he was very Angie much is a bit connected. older than me <laughs> Your face. <laughs> You're so annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry. I missed that era of Reese's career. Um, I was a little too young for that. Mind you, I'm only three years older. But but important to know too, listeners, that Angie and I would have never gone to high school at the same time. That, But that's all you. That's actually on my parents. That's not on me. <laughs> that's true. But like talking about Reese Witherspoon back in my day, the way that I viewed Reese Witherspoon growing up, it was her involvement with men. And but a lot of people, a lot of actresses of the time too, are known for their partners, mm. who they're dating. Because that was especially early two thousands. Right, right. This is a really good point. Yes, that was the era. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But for Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett. I don't think of them as wives or girlfriends to men. Yes. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So when they're doing interviews, they are independent. I mean, that's how it should be in general. Mm-hmm. But their significant others aren't brought up often at all. Right. In interviews. But I think that goes to show how amazing their acting is. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think part of... This is just my opinion. A part of lazy journalism, when you get an actor 
and maybe this goes to show the acting abilities too when there's not much to talk about within the film acting wise i think the easy low-hanging fruit is okay so let's talk about your husband what does your husband think about this or you know what i'm saying let's talk about your relationship right Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like them being queer coded has more to do with how we perceive them in real life and them really not being attached to men, mm. you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's other quote unquote heterosexual folk or heter- heterosexual presenting folk who make it known, like they'll do a queer role and they make it known that they're not queer. Mm. They're like, nope, I'm not queer. And so this is what it was like trying to play somebody queer. Love is love. And they do that whole thing in a lot of interviews, but they want to make it known that they don't want to be identified as queer. They just played a queer role, mm-hmm. you know? Right. It didn't feel like Kate Blanchett did that or Rooney Mara did that. Right. Overall, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like too, at least I'm going to speak about Kate. I feel like... Mm-hmm. She's kind of leaned into that even more post-Carol, though. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm just thinking about, like, Ocean's 8 and Tar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because it's a... It's not this... I'm trying to figure out the words. It's something that we're not, like, hanging over our head. Like, oh, you played a queer role. You know? It was just like, oh, you did this thing. This was another movie that you did. Mm -hmm. You know? It happened to be about the subject matter. Right. But you you did phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like... There's other actors, like I've said before, others actors and actresses where they played a queer role and it was like, oh, this was a career defining role because you were gay. Right. How was that? Totally. Yes. Whereas for Kate Blanchett, it was a career defining role because she was just fucking good. Yeah. It's like the performance transcends the label of the, the character. Look at you. Yes. You guys, that was the short version of what I just said. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You said, mm-hmm. did that. <laughs> yeah. I got what you were going for. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I also you. just think too, like she's, this is maybe like my Carol brain, but I think she's just like so much better with women. Oh. Like I think Kate Blanchett has more chemistry with women than she does mm-hmm. with men. I agree. Yeah, no, Kate Blanchett has phenomenal on-screen presence with, with women all around. Ocean's 8 prime example yeah and todd haynes even said too like it's difficult to find a man that can play kate's husband because she's such a force period so you need to find a man that's like yeah able to stand toe-to-toe with her and there's not that many you have to cast a real uh without sounding sexist a real man opposite kate blanchett you need a guy who's grown up you know and a lot of actors just don't seem grown up no matter how old they get. They just seem like juveniles with gray hair or something. That was the end of my, like, Kate. The, <laughs> the Kate spiel? Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Clearly, because you had an essay ready to go. Well, I was video like, essay <laughs> incoming. <laughs> Who is it? Mrs. Potts, dear. I thought you might like a spot of tea. So the next segment is spill the technicolor tea where we just give tea about this era of carol and behind the scenes stuff it's like nice to have a little tea party every once in a while i'm sure i'm gonna learn a shit ton right now so uh take it away steffi okay here we go go. so i thought we could dive into patricia highsmith just some patricia highsmith facts let's do it so 
Like we said in part one, Patricia Highsmith was a queer woman, notable writer. She wrote The Price of Salt, Mm -hmm. which is Carol, and she published it under the pseudonym Claire Morgan because originally the publishers rejected it because they were like, what the fuck are you doing trying to write a lesbian love story in the 50s? Is this career suicide? So no. But- The interesting thing is that the story of Carol is kind of inspired by her own experience. So in 1948, she worked as a sales girl in the toy department at Bloomingdale's in New York during the holiday season. And one day she had an encounter with a blonde woman wearing a mink coat and that woman's name was Kathleen Wiggins-Sen and she was so taken by this woman and their encounter that later that night she wrote an eight-page outline that would become The Price of Salt and eventually she would finish that novel by 1951 and that's why the movie takes place in the early 1950s to pay homage to that. In terms of character inspirations, Therese is obviously based off of Patricia Highsmith herself, and some have even said that Rooney Mara has a resemblance to Patricia Highsmith. And then Carol, clearly, was inspired by Kathleen Sen, but online they also say that she's an amalgamation of different women that Patricia Highsmith had relationships with. There was a woman named Catherine Hamill Cohen, who was a psychoanalyst, and then there was another woman named Virginia Kent Catherwood, who was a Philadelphia socialite, and she actually lost custody of her daughter in a high-profile divorce. And similarly to the story in Carol, there was a secret tape of recordings that was involved in the fallout of that. So there's that. And then Todd Haynes also added an additional note. He he told this story on Charlie Rose about how Patricia Highsmith had actually kept the address of this woman. She kept the address. And one day she she took a train to Park Ridge, New Jersey. She hunted down the address. She hid in the bushes outside the house. I mean, just such a great story. Such a great story. And 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 just watched and never saw her. Never saw the woman. So she never saw her again. Never saw the woman again. And the biographers who tracked all of this down learned that this was not a particularly happy woman. She not long after this, I think, she went into her garage, turned on the car, and killed herself. She was a mother with kids. And when we did our, we were, when we were in pre-production, we weren't sure if we were going to shoot any of it in New York itself. We tracked down the address. We went to the house. We knocked on the door. Uh, a housekeeper opened the door. And uh, it was just great to just see the neighborhood yeah. and imagine all of that. And yeah, that's the story. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Dang. Dark. I, <laughs> me trying to process. I'm like, hold up, hold up. That's a sad ending, though. Golly. Yeah. Jeebus. Yeah, and I think like Kate Blanchett said in an interview that she had that woman in her mind while she was mm. playing Carol. Wow. Like what would have happened if Therese would have not showed up? I, I did did keep that very much alive in my mind. What would have, what would have happened to Carol if Therese had not come along? You know, mm. and I wonder if she might have quietly suicided one day, you know. Um or slowly, over time. Yes, exactly. As people or do. atrophied. Yeah. You know, as, as, a, as many of us still do, you know, if, if you can't fully realize your, you know, your identity, particularly your sexual identity, if that is, is kept locked up. That's a dark, not, mm, that's dark, that's a dark ending. 
Jeebus. It is dark. Oh, my goodness. Um, the next bit I have here is about development okay, yeah. of Carol. This is, oh my gosh, you guys, this was really, this was a struggle to get made. So this movie has been in development since 1997. Which is crazy. It took 18 years to get made. Phyllis Nage, who is the screenwriter of Carol, she wrote the first draft in 1997. It was the very first script that I was paid to write. So the first draft of that. 15-ish years ago. The whole experience has been like an instant primer in what happens in, to movies and how movies get made and how they don't get made and what you can expect and the highs and the lows and the ridiculousness along the way and what people ask you to do. And, you know, it, it, it was a huge learning experience. Mm. And what I learned most of all is the power of saying, no, that won't work. And she's talked about how it was difficult to get financing, especially in 1997, but not necessarily because it was a lesbian romance, but because it was mainly about two women. Mm. You have mentioned several times that this was a low budget uh, film and that, you know, there was some struggle to get it financed. But what I find interesting about it is not that it was hard to get it financed because it was a gay love story, but because it was starred two women. But time and time again, you come back to women being the central, they're like you are muse more than anything. So you're kind of always having to deal with this struggle with studios, right? I am. It's a recurrent struggle. It's not as if financiers say that to you verbatim. Sure. You know what I mean? Well, they're not allowed. They're not allowed. And, and there's a silent, coded, sh constantly shifting algebra of what makes any film viable or worth investing in at this moment versus that moment. And unfortunately, there's a kind of... Uh, you know, recurrent amnesia around the fact that films about women can do well in the box office, films about women can draw over half the population of filmgoers, uh, and actually some guys might even be interested in stories about women, you know, newsflash. It has happened. It has happened. <laughs> in the words of Reese, women's stories matter. Facts. Women's stories matter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They just matter. Yeah. But yeah, over the years, like there were tons of rewrites and different directors attached, which we'll get into later. But the project eventually stalled. Mm. And um, Phyllis Nage, from a production, like a developmental production standpoint, it's interesting that she talked about how there were different versions of the film that got financed that were more like agenda issue driven. Mm. But she herself didn't feel like that was the appropriate direction to go in. Right. Because in Carol, like, the characters don't really feel shame or apologetic yeah. about their sexuality. It's more so like society has a problem with that. There are three different shades of, let's say, um, lesbian sexuality afoot in the book. And each of them, in their subtle ways, is very revealing. But none of them um, has a has a, an ounce of guilt attached to them, which I thought was extraordinary. But, you know, at that time, in order to find financing, in order to appease the financers, she had to kind of adjust the story in a way so they would finance the movie. Right, right. The script was this fixed thing, not in its, you know, it changed constantly, but in its aims and its, its objectives and its refusal to become an agenda based script mm. maybe 10 years ago it, it could have been made if 
we'd made that kind of change to the script um, and had the rousing speech about rights or uh, God knows what else, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably what it would have taken at that time. But now, or two years ago, when, when it went into production, that was no longer the case, really, apparently. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of glad we didn't have to do that. This is going to eventually bite them in the ass. But that's what I personally love about Carol is like it doesn't virtue signal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I hate movies and shows now that like they're trying to like get a cookie yeah, for, for this representation. Being yeah, representative about. Representation. Yeah. And then it's like you feel like your arm is being twisted and it's like, oh, well, I have to like this thing yeah. because it stands for this. Right. But it's like if it's not good, then like what the fuck is this? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a very blunt way of saying it. But um, you guys, at the end of the day, this is a business. <laughs> of storytelling and if you are not telling the story well oh just because you check off certain boxes that does not mean i have to like your movie or show absolutely absolutely yeah you're right that's one thing about the film industry that i hate now because i feel like everybody does it yes especially post 2020 yeah i feel like 2020 was like the big shift and post 2020 it was like okay, we got to show you that the black characters in our story matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, and our queer folks do matter. And it's just like, just write good stories and let it be. You know what I'm saying? Just let, just let it be. Exactly. I feel like what the film industry does now and what Carol didn't do is they treated their audience as intelligent. That's what Carol did. Yes. Whereas most of the film industry right now, they try to spoon feed us everything that they want us to feel mm -hmm. instead of just doing the project and allowing us to feel what we're going to feel. And if you did it right, we should feel the proper stuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like Carol did that perfectly where they're just like, our audience is intelligent. They're going to understand what is this and what is that? And they're going to understand what to feel and we're going to set up everything and you just experience it. It's an experience. I think there were there was a, a particular draft of the script that I, you know, I earlier on, mm -hmm. and I knew that what I was being asked to do was a ridiculous and bad idea, but I did it, and in doing it, proved that it was a bad idea. You know, it's like you if you've got to put something in front of someone's face. Right. in order for them to see that it's maybe not such a good idea. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of that. And I'm grateful that that happened because now I know how to, I know how to finesse um, bad decisions. And it's not by saying, no, I, I couldn't possibly do that. Mm -hmm. It's by saying, okay, I can do that. And doing it to the max yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, it falls out in the wash later. Well, my next point is kind of tied to queerness. We talked about this previously in our San Junipero episode, but I think it's worth bringing up again in the context of Carol. Mm. But I wanted to know, like, how do you feel about Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara as, like, you know, straight women? At the very least, they're married mm. to men playing these iconic lesbians. Yeah. Um, it's such a touchy subject, I feel like, in general. Yeah. Because I feel like I do want more queer people playing queer roles, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I feel like there's a, a little bit more freedom with 
queer women characters. Mm, right? Okay. We're a bit more lenient with straight women playing queer women. Yeah. I think uh, we see a big issue primarily with uh, straight men playing queer queer men. Yeah. And queer men being shut out, especially like if you look at the case of like a Billy Porter type of individual where mm. he's absolutely queer coded outside of film. Right. Like yes. You could tell this is a queer man. Yes. And so it's harder for him to get straight roles mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but at the same time there was like a point in time where billy porter his name wasn't big enough to even get the queer roles right even though he's a gay man you yeah. know you know it's a double layer the layer of actually being a person of color in this industry and then the other layer of being a queen yep nobody can see you as anything else if flamboyantly dot, dot, dot wasn't in the description of the character, no one would see me ever for anything, um, which wouldn't be so enraging if it went the other direction. But it doesn't. Right. Because straight men playing gay, everybody wants to give them an award. <laughs> Thank you for gracing us with your straight presence. Yeah. So that gets tiresome. Yep. So here I sit, I can't get the gay parts, I can't get the straight parts, I can't get nothing. <laughs> so it's a touchy issue. Like I said, I feel like this issue mainly, I think it affects the men more. Mm. But for me, if you do the the role justice, mm-hmm. then I'm cool. But also at the same time, uh, your politics matter. And I'm not even going front. Your politics matter. Yeah, totally. There, you know, there's been a couple people like, What's Odu Sean Penn? Yeah. Sean Penn being homophobic and him doing Milk Harvey. Right. Or Harvey Milk. Yeah. Like, no, I, I don't want you playing a queer individual mm-hmm. with those type of politics. Right. Because it's clear that you just do it for the Oscar accolade. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I think that's dangerous that at the, like, you're being um, awarded because what happens for straight people playing queer people and they're doing a really good job, they get accolades in a different way than queer folks just playing queer folks, right? Right. It's like, oh my God, these these are these big allies. And you know what I'm saying? Very much, you know, what Beyonce got with Renaissance. Mm. Oh, here's this big ally and you know right the buzz the joy and the love for beyonce is still radiating from the stadium right now her fans say they feel empowered and represented in her music <laughs> beyonce fans are <laughs> celebrating in the bay we really feel like right now what she's doing is celebrating queer joy and so i'm so excited to just be able to get to be in that kind of space but we rush to give them the ally title but if you have shitty politics afterwards that's hurting our community anyways Mm -hmm. that's hurting our community behind the scenes you know what i'm saying yeah um so i don't know i I feel like we need to take it case by case because if i look at the most iconic like queer characters queer women characters within the film industry nine times out of ten they're going to be played by a heterosexual woman yeah you know Mm -hmm. it's very rare that we got you know a queer woman playing a queer woman i know now there's also way more space again with actresses and female characters that the idea around sexuality in this day and age is changing so much right so hopefully 
we don't have to have this conversation within the next 10 years because just as a society, the way that we view sexuality, there there's more people opening up about their sexuality. It's not like a, a closeted thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That we will have just by default because society, we would have more queer people just out being okay with playing a queer roles, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I think we need to take it case by case. I feel like for Carol, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the casting. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, obviously, like, we love this movie largely because of the performances. Absolutely. And if they could perform down, great. Like, I'm cool with that. Right. You know? Yeah. But even, again, I think there's a lot that goes with it. Because if you could perform down, but if your interviews are kind of cringe. Right. Then I'm side-eyed. Because Kate Winslet, she played a lesbian in... Um, Ammonite. What's that movie? Ammonite. And some of her interviews were kind of cringe. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I love Kate Winslet down, but girl, girl. What would she say? Um, They would talk about, of course, the, the queerness within the film. And she said something. And th- there's a huge age gap. Yeah. Similarly to Carol. Yes. Kate Winslet was like, I need to get my own Carol after talking to Literally. Kate Blanchett. <laughs> literally hollywood reporter round table (laughs) and i forgot the um the actress's name that played across from kate winslet in that film shersha ronan shersha ronan yeah did i pronounce that right yeah yeah shersha ronan yeah shersha ronan so she was like yeah for that sex scene i waited till shersha ronan's birthday so i could give her oh a birthday gift (laughs) of the sex scene oh my gosh so she was really trying to follow in the footsteps of Kate and Rooney. <laughs> I said, ma'am, <laughs> what? <laughs> it was the greatest birthday present I could have asked for. I made them move the scene forward by four days so that we shot it on certain birthdays. Yes, I did. I yes. didn't know that it was a good excuse for us to uh, to drink on the job. And so we had a, a couple of glasses of Prosecco to celebrate my birthday. It felt very, very lovely. And we were a bit tipsy and it was great. Despite the critique around the film, yeah, Kate Winslet was acting down. Kate, it's Kate Winslet, right? Right, yeah, yeah, So yeah. I watched it a couple of times specifically for Kate Winslet. Right. But I was also shocked by the sex scenes in the film. It was one of those moments where I was just like, <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. They went, Oh my God. And it, I was like, Oh, and it's still going. The sex scene is still, Oh my gosh. You know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, wow. <laughs> I was like, Oh, they're, they're for real getting into it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it just depends on like the interviews around it. Like how you deal with the subject matter. Again, what's her face? Rachel, Rachel Weiss. Oh, Rachel Weiss, yeah. And Rachel McAdams. They yeah. were in a film together where they play lesbians. Right. What was the film called? I forgot what the film was called. I think it's called Disobedience. Dis. Look at you. No one to queer. <laughs> look at you. I know. <laughs> you guys, I'm an ally. I'm trying to, like, really uh, widen I my knowledge. <laughs> Are you still angry with me? You disappeared. And your wife would be distracted by Ronnie's return? This is my house we're talking about. I keep it in order. I used to think about your life in New York. I kept track of time difference. 
me when you were awake, when you were asleep. The way that they, um, both Rachels handled that whole film rollout was amazing. You know what I'm saying? So it just depends on how you handle yourself. Because we will know if you really don't fuck with the queer community. Yeah. It's obvious. Yeah. I.e. old dude who played Elton John. Oh, Taron Edgerton? Mm-hmm. Really? What happened with him? It was just a lot of cringe-worthy moments. Oh. And I think it's mostly because he was so heterosexual. Oh. He didn't know any of the, the queer lingo. So, like, when he started getting interviewed by queer people, especially gay men... They would throw something at him. He's like, what is that? And it's like, okay, fam, know the culture a little bit. Come on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Work it out. Yeah. You know? Taron Edgerton is a white boy that I trust to destroy my bussy. What does that mean? Really? I feel like that was a very long-winded answer. No, it's good because I, I wanted to, like, get your get your thoughts on it. I mean, I, like, for me, like, my my answer to that question is... I think my position remains the same. Like, ideally, you want people within the LGBTQ plus community to have more access to playing any role. But I think it is interesting to think about this in the context of, like, 2023 versus, like, 2015 when Carol came out. I just feel like there's a lot of queer characters in so many shows and movies, like, nowadays. Like, and I'm going to assume probably more compared to 2015. Absolutely. When Carol was released. Yeah. And I feel like we're starting to get to a point where the character's sexuality is not the defining trait mm-hmm. of their character, you know? Yeah, like, I'm absolutely. thinking, like, Stephanie Shue's character in Everything Everywhere All at Once is queer. Yeah, yeah. But when I think about that movie, that's not necessarily the first thing I think no. about when I see that character. And that right. movie won Best Picture. Right. And then I also think of um, Jonathan Bailey. Do you know who that is? That actor? No. He's an open, out gay man, but he was a romantic lead in Bridgerton. Oh, okay, okay. And he played opposite of a woman. And Bridgerton is like one of Netflix's yeah, biggest yeah. shows. Absolutely. Things I could teach you. But also right now, he's currently starring in Fellow Travelers mm-hmm. with Matt Bomer, right, right, right. who is a gay man. Yeah. I'm your boy, right? Hmm? Wow, well, wow. Well. And your boy wants to go to the party. How much does he want to go? Their love story is a huge part of the show. And even in the marketing of the show, they don't shy away from from that at all. Yeah, I mean, no surprises, really. But I, at 11, I remember saying to my friends, I was like, does anyone else think they're gay? (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you guys at boys' school? I was like, surely, is this a normal thing? Obviously, it went quiet. And he's going to be playing, um, I think, Cynthia Erivo's love interest in Wicked Mm. because he's playing Fiero. Okay. So that's an example of someone who is able to play yeah, yeah. both straight and gay. Not saying that it's easy for everyone. Right, like right. you brought up the example with Billy Porter. Yeah. Like I think Jonathan Bailey's probably more like quote unquote like straight passing yeah, yeah, yeah. than Absolutely. Billy yeah. Porter. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I think there is more queer roles, always not enough, but there's more now compared to 2015. And yeah. because of that, more queer people have the potential to play 
queer roles Absolutely. because there's just like more opportunity like the idea of like scarcity of opportunity right. isn't like as prevalent right. as it was back then but then like i was also thinking too compared to when we did the san junipero episode mm-hmm. my thoughts have like evolved just slightly mm. in that i don't think it's fair for us to demand to know the sexuality of anyone absolutely. let alone an actor absolutely did you hear about like the kit connor debacle with Heartstopper? no okay so for anyone who doesn't know Heartstopper is like a coming-of-age tv show on netflix most of the main characters are queer okay in that show okay. like your core group of kids they're all yeah, yeah, like yeah. part of the lgbtq community in some way and in season one, his character arc revolved around his character realizing that he was bisexual. Okay. And so a lot of people started to criticize him, Kit Connor, saying like, it's not fair for another straight actor to take roles from queer people. Mm. And then he eventually got on Twitter and he tweeted out, I'm bi. So he came mm. out on Twitter and said, I'm bi. Yeah. But then he said, congrats for forcing an 18-year-old to out himself. I right, think some right. of you missed the point of the show, bi. Yeah, yeah. So he only came out because he felt forced to. Right, right. I think it's very powerful what you put on Twitter the other day, actually, where you said mm. apparently some people on here know my sexuality better than I do because yeah. I just don't think that anyone on this planet has a right to anyone's uh, yeah. identity in any level. In the cast, we're all, you know, we're still all so young. And to start sort of speculating about our sexualities and, and maybe pressuring us to come out, you know, and when maybe we're not ready. I, you know, it, it's 2022. I, it feels a bit strange to make assumptions about a person's sexuality just based on, you know, hearing their voice or seeing their appearance. Like, I get people wanting queer people to play queer characters but inherent to that idea is like you have to like know the person's sexuality and i don't think that's fair to put them in a position where they have to like come out just to justify like why i'm in this role especially if they're good i totally you know it's very complicated yeah no no i totally understand that i i feel like absolutely nobody should force anybody out like yeah you shouldn't be outed forced to be outed yeah right um, yeah, I think yeah. the hard part is a lot of journalists make that a focus point. So if the movie is right, totally, if totally. there's a big focus around sexuality, mm-hmm. then of course there's going to be questions around sexuality. Yeah. And oftentimes the questions are, what was it like playing a queer person? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we're still seeing more roles yeah. for queer characters. Mm-hmm. It's still not a norm. Right. And there's still an overwhelming majority of, I'm talking like big queer parts, like a Carol, like, a you know, the Elton John film. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where those are overwhelmingly played by heterosexual folk, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the men side of it. And then them being asked, well, what was it like playing a gay person? Right. We also got to put queer films in context, Right. For the longest, I would say still, I feel like still it's like a lingering effect. But for the longest, you could not make a queer film without a heavy hitter heterosexual big name. Right. Yeah. Right. So in the film industry, that's seen as a norm. Right. Who could we get to uh, change the best? Like who's going to do the the most acting and, and shifting as a character? From what we see in the rea- in the reality, right? Hillary Swank in Boys Don't Cry, you know, where she plays a trans mask person. 
And the Oscar goes to Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. This is Hilary Swank's first Oscar nomination. She lived as a boy for one month to prepare for the role of Tina Brandon, a true story of a boy, girl living as a boy in Nebraska. Thank you so much. We have come a long way. So it's, it's I feel like a lot of times that is a, a, still a huge thing. And it's still one of those things where heterosexual actors see playing queer characters as getting, it's like Oscar bait. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I could change up my whole thing. They know I'm like, I'm, I'm married to a woman or they know I'm married to a man, but I'm going to play a queer character. Right. Easy Oscar bait. Right. You know? Yeah. So uh, it's a complex topic. I, I'm with you. I don't think we should out actors, but I think within the journalistic spaces, in the interview spaces, it becomes an easy thing to talk about. Right. Because those those are the questions that are being asked. Yeah. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been very long-winded with those answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I think some of that does actually pop up during, like, the panels and the marketing for mm -hmm. Carol, which we're going to get into yeah. in a little bit. But, um, well, let's ask another big question. Oh. Here we go. In 2022, during the press for Tar, Kate Blanchett did a career retrospective interview at the Santa Barbara Film Festival where she was being honored with an award. And when they got to the Carol section, she shared a story of a male interviewer, which she emphasizes he was male, asking her about forging a career path in playing predatory lesbians. Mm, mm -hmm. Although I was doing an interview the other day about Tar, and the interviewer, male, said, um, you seem to be forging a line in predatory lesbians. <laughs> I said, excuse me? <laughs> and he said, Lydia Tarr. He said, Carol. And I went, have you seen the film? Have you read the book? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Yeah, that's a it's tough a, you know, it's 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 such a reductive way to look at that story and that beautiful beautiful film. So, the question is, Angie, do you think Carol is a predatory lesbian? I I could see why. All right. There's two versions. These are big These are questions. Huge. <laughs> huge topics of conversation we are getting into. Now, when this episode is three hours long. When we break this into two parts, it will all make sense. Oh. So I think what people, what listeners, the listeners need to understand is there is a big trope within queer spaces that there are usually huge age gaps within queer relationships. And this is like an actual thing. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. One of my first big relationships coming out, I, I was with somebody who was 14 years my, my senior, mm. right? It is like a for real big thing that affects the, the queer communities. Also, it was one of the huge uh, storylines within Pose. Right. What Billy Porter's character and old dude. Yeah. So getting back to Carol, uh, I could see why the trope came along. The age gap obviously is there. Yeah. It, it's very apparent, right? Mm -hmm. It's on the, Carol's on that fine line. Mm. The way that I see it is, okay, if Carol was a guy, 
would we get the ick? But do you think that's fair to even flip the question like that? I think sometimes yes. Because, well, first of all, when we flip it, there's already like an ick because men tend to just be on the ick side when it comes to like uh, big age gaps Mm -hmm. going for younger women, Mm -hmm. right? So I know there's like that natural ick, right? Right, right. But we have to look with the 2023 lens, Mm -hmm. right? At what this trope is and what these queer spaces are experiencing. Okay. Right? And us now understanding like, now that behavior, we shouldn't, it, it was a thing, but we shouldn't be like perpetuating it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um. But is Carol <laughs> predatory? <laughs> I'm going to stick up for my girl and say no. I really don't think she is. I'm sticking up for my girl. And I don't think she is. <laughs> I think, okay, it's interesting that you said you have to look at this through a 2023 lens. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think that's fair. But it's also important to consider that Carol takes place in the 1950s. It does. It does. That's true. And I see what you're saying. And I feel like this is what I'm imagining. If you were queer during that time, like your options are going to be limited. Very limited. Yes. <laughs> Very limited. Very limited. So like, how would you even know right, right, right. that someone is queer in the 1950s? So like, if you find someone, I would imagine you're like, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is great. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I have this, this here. Is great. This is great. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like if you're you're just like remembering that this takes place in the 1950s, like because your options and choices are like so limited. Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's like a real danger and threat if people right. find out. So it's like if you find someone, absolutely, you you kind of like take your chance on that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think too in terms of like the film, I think there's very clear moments in that script where they kind of address the potential accusation of Carol is a predator yeah, right, right. like you know that scene when they're in the car and then Teresa's like oh i just i keep saying yes and that's all the and then like carol pulls over and then yeah. she like turns to her and she's like i took what you gave willingly yeah what am i thinking i'm thinking that i'm utterly selfish and i don't do this you had no idea how could you have known and i should have said no to you but i never say no and it's selfish because because I just take everything and I don't know anything and I don't know what I want. How could I when all I ever do is say yes to everything? I took what you gave willingly. Like, I thought that line specifically was a bit of a, okay, you know, just to emphasize mm-hmm. Carol did was, I mean, she's the one that opened the robe, but she was not, Absolutely. she didn't like, Push her onto the bed. Also, Therese is the one that says, take me to bed. It's not Carol. Yes. It's Therese initiating that. Take me to bed. And I think throughout the film, too, Carol is always asking Therese if she wants to do something. Yes. What do you do on Sundays? Nothing in particular. What do you do? Oh, nothing lately. I mean, if you'd like to come visit me sometime, you're welcome to. At least there's some pretty country around where I live. Would you like to come visit me this Sunday? Yes. Contextually, like, Carol has more experience and she's older. 
But I think, like, if she was the one that had to keep waiting for Therese to, like, have Therese be the one to ask her, like, there would be no story. <laughs> I, I feel like... Like, she has to be the one initiating all of this or else, like, nothing is going to happen. Yes, story-wise, okay. I absolutely could see that. Contextually, in the 1950s, yes, absolutely. Age gaps like that were common. When we talked to our, our grandmothers, like, they were marrying dudes like damn near twice their age yes it was common totally get that i think the issue is this movie was made not in the 1950s it was made in 2015 with these new lenses and i think that's where people are coming from because okay but is it is it isn't it important to know too that like then if we're looking at this through a 2015 lens mm -hmm. like rooney mara was 30 when she did carol yeah yeah you're an like I mean you're an adult, yeah. And I'm pretty sure like they aged up Therese in the story. You think? And they aged up Carol too, because Kate Blanchett is like 45, 46. Okay, in the story. So then, question: Let's get down. In the book, it's a bit, it's different. What are the age gaps in the story? In the movie or in the book? In the movie. In the movie, I don't think they ever specify. Right, but right. I'm being led to believe that she's in her 20s like i'm gonna imagine yeah, yeah. she's like mid to late 20s because that's how old rooney mara was when they shot carol right. she was 29 30 mm. kate blanchett was 45 46 when she made carol yeah. like technically if we're looking at this through like a legal lens you're she's she's a consenting adult oh, yeah no it's not it's not about a legal lens i think here's where the issue comes because it's such a big topic of conversation in queer spaces mm -hmm. because it's not about whether it's legal or not it's about the power dynamics and power dynamics are super important yeah right? totally totally um and there was a power dynamic at play in carol and i think we should absolutely understand that which which means that Teresa's character could have been influenced by the power dynamic yeah so yeah she yeah. could have been willingly saying yes right and carol's comeback is like well you say yeah so we did x y and z but there's we understand that therese has a huge infatuation with carol uh -huh. right we understand that and that is a big persuasive situation right when you are sitting in front of somebody that you don't think you never in a million years you thought you uh -huh. were gonna get uh -huh. right and they're older than you and they know they have more experience there's a power dynamic at play you know um so I think that's the conversation that keeps coming up often when we talk about queer representation. Right. Like if this was the first time we've seen this type of dynamic in a film with a queer couple, uh -huh. then okay, it's whatever. And it's, and it's not like a big thing within the queer community. Okay, then that's just a story. Mm. But it's a huge thing within queer spaces and we keep seeing it perpetuated in films. You know, Carol aside... I don't think that should be the norm where if you're coming up and you're looking at these queer stories, like you either see like teenagers being together, but the adult representation of queer couples that you see are these huge age gaps. And you, that's all you see. I think that's where it becomes a problem. Right. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. And high key, there's a predatory nature to it. I think Pose was a perfect representation of it. Mm -hmm. When we saw Pray Tell get with Oh Boy. Like, fam, you know better. You're seen as a, uh, like, a father figure in the community. Right. We saw what Ammonite, the TV show Queer as Folk, there was a huge-ass age gap. Like, old dude was barely legal. 
You know what I'm saying? So we see it consistently again and again, perpetuated. And I feel like coming from queer people, it's a fair question to ask, especially because you're not a part of that community. Right. Yeah. As in Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming like you're not part of this community. So your representation is not affecting you directly. It's affecting us. Right. Yeah. And these are the questions that we have. And these are the, you know, stereotypes that are within our community. And this is how you're perpetuating it. So, yeah, let's ask the question. You know, I feel like Carol could see, be seen as both ways. Like I could see how people view Carol as predatory. Mm-hmm. I could see how within the frame of the film and just looking at character development and all of that stuff that within these spaces, she could be seen as not predatory. Right. Like she's just a woman in the 50s who just happened to fall in love with this person. Yes, there is an age gap, but it is what it is. Like this is right. what I fell in love yeah, with. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see it both ways. Yeah. I can see it both ways. I'm, well, I mean, it's not really my place to say because <laughs> yeah. I'm not from the, I'm not of the queer community, but I'm <laughs> sticking up for my girl and I'm saying. You said I'm I don't <laughs> see that. <laughs> um. You have these damn big questions, my God. <laughs> I don't see that. Um, oh, but sure. My goodness. <laughs> like I said, I, th- I think it's more so just the 20, 2015 question, the 2023 question of like, do we still need this type of representation with these huge age gaps? Like we, we don't need it. Yeah. You know? And I think maybe like there's something to be said to like the queer stories that you do keep seeing. Like, I mean, the one, at least the ones that you cited, mm-hmm. maybe with the exception of um, Queers Folk, yeah, all of them take place in the past. Mm. Like, if we were looking at a queer love story and the queer love story took place in 2023 and the age gap was this mm. big, then I'd be like, okay, hold on. But, you know, Carol, the source material, like, that's Patricia Highsmith in the what was it like in the 40s and the 50s like yeah, I just yeah. I feel like it's kind of difficult to like place social rules the way we see things should be working now in 2023 mm-hmm. and impose that on an earlier time period like when did Am and I take place like that's like what so it's like 1800s like- yeah that's like a really really old time <laughs> yeah. I mean poses the 80s has been quite a while, so yes. <laughs> it's we're a little bit removed from that time period. But also, if there are creative liberties taken, why can't the age gap be one of the creative liberties taken? Sure. Yeah, sure. In terms of like aging up people. Yeah. I just feel like if you aged up Therese or if you made Carol younger, like the entire tension of Carol falls apart. Absolutely. I'm, like I said, Carol aside, like if we're looking at this as like, for what it is, it's like this is a reoccurring issue within the film industry. Yeah. Why if we're taking creative license on on stories in and of itself, like there was no need imposed that whole storyline. There was no need. Yeah. I Listen, I'm, I completely agree with you. <laughs> I didn't like that storyline either. I thought it was weird, especially <laughs> since like that literally came out of nowhere in the context out of, of that show. But yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys. Okay, so this is editor Steffi here talking. And I was trying so hard to find if there were any interviews where Rooney or Kate or Todd were asked about the potential like predatory nature of the relationship between Carol and Therese. 
I couldn't really find anything. But there was a panel that they did. I think this is in New York City. And someone did ask them. Um, I mean, it wasn't directly, do you think the relationship is predatory? But the word predatory is brought up. So I just thought I would tack in their response to the question. You are going to hear the question. And then you're going to hear Rooney Mara answer. And then Kate Blanchett and then Todd Haynes answer. So I just thought, you know, because we had a whole discussion about it, I thought it would be worth adding. Um, the clip is a little long, but... Here you go. Enjoy. Hi. Um, another one of the things I noticed was obviously the two women are in very different life stages. Um, Carol being more established and having children and married. Older. Older. Yeah. <laughs> no, but also, but that doesn't always say that. Um, I think it would be very different had Carol been a man. Obviously, it becomes a different story because she is kind of helping Therese sort of find herself and asking her questions and encouraging her to do new things. Um, I wonder if that gave you more, because you're both women, it gave more freedom for it not to feel like, for lack of a better term, like predatory. Um, that's it. Maybe that was a sloppy question, but I hope you understand what I mean. I mean, I don't know. Would it ever feel predatory? I mean, it's not like I'm 17 years old, you know, Therese is, is um, younger than Carol and she, she certainly, they are at different stages in their lives, but I, I don't think that she's so young that it would, it, it never felt predatory to me and I don't think it ever really would have male or female. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about this is the obsession and, and actually perhaps more so in, in, in the book, there's this there's this pursuit, this obsessive pursuit that, that um, Therese has of, of, of Carol, and because of Carol's sense of consequence um, and the, you know, the difference in, in their ages and experiences and also their different socioeconomic backgrounds, it's, you know, there's a sense of just how we have to quiet the horses here and not go too quickly with this because I'm, I know that this is not necessarily going to end uh, well, so it's kind of in a way that she's... Just, uh, that, but that's delicious stuff to play with because that's what that's what loads up all those silences, and every word is is not only carefully chosen by the beautiful screenplay, but by the women. Can I say this? This might have two meanings. I'm not sure if that was taken the right way. Did I just hear what I thought you were saying behind what you just said? You know, it's wonderful stuff to play with this because there's so much stuff um, between them and keeping them apart. There are also things that a modern audience has to keep reminding ourselves were quite different at this time, where, counterintuitively, where an older woman could invite a younger woman to lunch, and it was absolutely totally appropriate, where she would never have invited the head of the ski department to lunch, or they could check into a motel together as two women, but if they were a heterosexual unmarried women, a couple checking into a hotel at this time, it would have been scandalous. So there's ways in which the the mores and the codes of the time are also things that we're learning and reading against their actions and gestures. Plus, let's not forget, Therese knows what she's doing when she sends the package, when she sends the gloves back to, yeah, she absolutely knows what she's doing, yeah. All right, well, that ends part two of our Carol discussion. Next week is going to be part three, and it's our final part in our Carol journey, if you will. Next week, we are going to talk all about Carol at the Oscars. That is going to be a Justice for Carol parentheses 2015 episode. So um, if you're really into that whole breakdown of um, Carol's lackluster Oscar journey, um, stay tuned for next week. 
And then we also talk about the memes with Carol and um, the marketing. It's a it's a fun episode next week. So make sure you come back for that. But if you did enjoy listening to us talk about Carol, we would really appreciate if you can take the time to give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really want to keep growing uh, our diva community here. So getting the word out there would really, really help us out in any way. If you are interested in following the podcast on social, we're at Diva Daily's Pod on Twitter slash X, Instagram, TikTok, and threads and you can always email us divadailiespod at gmail.com if you have any questions or concerns about carol or any of our previous episodes and if you are interested in following angie and i on our personal socials you can just look at the episode description for all of that information but yeah that is pretty much it for us this week we are so happy to be back this is still technically season three even though you know these episodes are coming out in the new year Uh, I think the way we have it scheduled is season four will officially start sometime in February. So we're still wrapping some things up uh, with season three. But we're so happy to be back in the new year. And we really, really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. But yes, that's pretty much it. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, remember divas. So the thing is, a diva has to be good at what she does.